going out there, like I'm not expected to do well. So anything I do is good, which gives me a ton of freedom, way less stress, and it actually becomes fun. And I think fun is the missing factor for success. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, Anthony Trucks has accomplished so much in his life. He played in the NFL, built two extremely successful businesses, wrote a best-selling book, and competed as an American Ninja Warrior. But that all pales in comparison to the positive impact he's making on every single person he interacts with. Anthony has experienced some extreme ups and downs in life, and that's what drives him to help others take shift seriously in their lives and to make great shift happen. Anthony was placed in the foster care system at the age of three, and he stayed at that system until he was adopted at the age of 14. Anthony loves his adopted parents and says his mom taught him unconditional love, but he still struggled with both the abuse and neglect he had experienced in in earlier homes, as well as being the only black kid in in a white family. He says that he used his turbulent background as an excuse until he heard two girls talking about him at school and realized how stupid that excuse sounded. He played football in high school, college, and the NFL, and he attributes his capacity to withstand pain to a college coach that really pushed him to realize his full potential. When Anthony ultimately left the NFL, he opened his own gym, and although he had no idea how to run a a gym or a business at all, this did not stop him. But the problems with the gym also disrupted Anthony's family life, and his marriage ended ultimately in in divorce. However, fast forward, and you'll hear a little bit more later, Anthony and his wife are now happily remarried. That's amazing. Navigating these extreme shifts in his life has been extremely, extremely difficult, but through a lot of internal work, which you know I'm all about that deep internal work, Anthony has been able to make sense of life's unexpected and expected shifts. How he accomplished all these great things, how he'd encountered and endured all the bad things, and how he could have handled them differently. But it wasn't just him struggling with all of these different ups and downs and identity issues and all of that stuff. He saw many other people struggling with the same thing, and he recognized that he could take the shifts that he has had in his own life and the success and the failures, but the mastery over who he is and what he has created to do and be and the impact he can have in, in the lives of others. And he is has taken all of that and created a business around it to truly impact 
the lives of others. There is so much in this episode for you and I both to learn from and to implement and action in our life. So bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. Anthony Trucks, what's up, brother? Welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Thanks for having me, man. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. No complaints. Enjoying my morning so far. No, we were connected by another legend, Larry Hagner, who uh, runs Bad Edge Alliance and is a, is a great man. And he, he sent out a blast email and introduced a bunch of us together. And so you and I connected and I'm, I'm pumped that we are actually face-to-face virtually you know, a few miles, a few miles down the road from you in Santa Cruz, and uh, we're going to rock yep. this smile today. Nice man, I'm actually nearby. I'm in Warner Creek here in Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz is nice, man. I, I always like the statement of um, "keep Santa Cruz weird." I like that statement. <laughs> it definitely is weird. It keeps getting weirder. I think that uh, they need to update that 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 bumper sticker. You know, we've had <laughs> many, many major, uh, you know. A huge growth in population, not necessarily of the type that you necessarily want in uh, community in the in the homeless population, the transient population more than the homeless population. Yeah. And they actually just had just to go off on a tangent real quick. They actually this is just so weird. Okay, this is just so bizarre. So on Highway One, as you're approaching like the Costco down the industrial area of Highway One, <laughs> there is this little sliver of land. That it is it, it's between the highway mm-hmm. and a shopping center, and this mobile group of trans of the transient population in Santa Cruz County yeah. set up camp there right alongside the highway. And there tent must city. have been yeah, there it was a tent city. I don't know if you heard about this, but it made national no. news. No, and the the city of Santa Cruz could not shut it down because <laughs> it was on state property. Oh yay! <laughs> so state had to come in. And the state wasn't going to do it. And anyway, it was just a massive nightmare and a mess. And uh, unfortunately, it, it caused all kinds of health issues. But nevertheless, we digress. We're going to bring it back full circle to why we're here. So we yeah. actually, we actually, we're talking the day after Father's Day. Yeah. And uh, I have four kids. You have three. Three. Awesome. And I love I love to hear from you about the thing that you appreciate most about fatherhood. Yeah, there's a lot I think I appreciate about fatherhood. I, one, I, I genuinely believe that my kids teach me to be a better person. I think that's one of the things I appreciate. It, as long as you allow that to be in, in the case, right? Because a lot of the times kids and days get smarter and they'll say things to you. And the most, you know, most parents grow up with like, I'm right because I'm your parent. And I don't subscribe to that. I'm more of like, uh, I, I need to learn this world. And my kids are other people in this world. And so you learn from other people. And so if they point something out that my brain didn't notice, sometimes I swallow my pride and be like, ah, you're right, you stinking nine-year-old. So yeah, <laughs> we got to adjust that. So that's one part of it. And the other part is there's, there's no greater joy than the vicarious joy of seeing your children succeed at something. I don't know why it is. Like I've, you know, I've played in the NFL and I've done this Ninja Warriors. I've done these cool, weird things. And I, so I don't live vicariously in a sense of like, you do that because that's how I'm going to feel better about myself. Like none of it's that, but it's a matter of like, when I get to see my daughter, like, you know, set these PRs for her swim or my son in track or my, my son score football and, and touch on the football. It's like this, this joy that I was like, man, it's a, it's a different joy than I had doing it myself, but it's, it's better in some aspects because I get to like experience it in different ways. So I love the joy of seeing my kids succeed other people's kids too, just not as much as my own kids. 
Mm -hmm. I love that, man. I love to just enjoy uh, the aspect of looking at other humans that I've been a part of their life, be able to do something where they're genuinely happy. And I think it's one of the reasons why I do what I do. I just love, I love being a part of the process of other people's joy. Yeah, there's there's definitely a reason why uh, there's that phrase childlike wisdom. You know, I mean, like they're unreasonable to the extent that they haven't been cluttered with all of the noise and the you know the structure and the rules and yeah. regulations that we have. And I yeah. remember my 11 year old, who is the world's number one Warriors fan. Sorry to hear that about this weekend. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I know, uh, brutal. But she, um, one time I was driving with her. And you know they have a way of making you think. And she goes, "Hey, Dad, have you always liked your name?" <laughs> I'm like, "Wow, you know, actually, no, I, I haven't always liked. I'm a junior, mm-hmm. and uh, and I haven't always liked my name. And and I didn't like my name until I was graduating high school. And they gave me the option to uh, to how they how they would read my name and put my name mm-hmm. on my diploma." And at that moment, I made a decision to have my full name, Michael J. Flynn Jr., on mm-hmm. a diploma. And that was where I was like, okay, I'm going to own my name and who I am and what, what it represents, both the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know? Yeah. Uh, I'd love to know, did you, have you always liked your name? Me? Uh, well, I was putting foster as a kid. So I, I actually, my very first name was Anthony Antonio Alonzo Trucks. My mom was legitimately out there looping it. So she, she named me Anthony twice before she gave me a middle name. And uh, when I got adopted, my adoptive family's last name was Hart, whereas Trucks was my last name. And so whenever I was adopted, I did I did change my name because I didn't like it completely. But then I didn't change Trucks because Trucks is just a really cool last name. So my name is Anthony Hart's Trucks now. That was a Trucks is a perfect football name. It's you so, know, man. Right, it's like linebacker too. Especially for you, yeah, you're a linebacker, so <laughs> you know you had to do it. So you know, yeah, you you did grow up in the in the foster care system, and then you were adopted at the eight. How old were you when you were adopted? I was put in at three. I wasn't adopted till fourteen. Okay, so and, and uh, you were adopted by what your parent, your adopted parents' names? Uh, the Hearts, the Hearts, yeah. Renee Hart. Randy Renee Hart. And I was watching a video of, uh, I think it was, I, I had something to do with Marie Forleo's B school where you were kind of recounting your story and, and you had, you had an, a very close relationship with your mother and uh, she, she passed away not long ago. If I, if I gather correctly yeah. and, and sorry for your loss on, on that, but I know that she obviously, she taught you a lot of lessons that you shared in that video and that you carry forward today. What, when you think about your mother, what are, what's the most important lesson that she taught you? Well, I don't know if there's one singular one. I think the, um, well, you can maybe boil it down to one. I think one of it was a lesson she actually gave me explicitly. It was more of like an, an implicit uh, lesson, we'll call it. And it was always like this, this sense of, like I was put in this house where I was, you know, the only black kid in all white family. I was really bad because I had a lot of just different things done to me as a kid that were just heinous. Uh, and so I really had this wall of emotions up that, you know, no one could penetrate. No one was allowed to be inside of. And over the years, she just would love me past the crazy, whether it was me being bad in school, me being acting up in the household, never paying attention, bad ADHD. And so I just really had this, this I was just this crazy kid and she loved me past the pain. I think the thing that I learned a lot uh, about just the world through my interactions, I learned through how she interacted with me, which was this unconditional love 
past the, the normal, like normal thought process and why you should love this person or care. And so for me, when she got to that point, in fact, 14 years old, was like adopted me and she always fought to adopt me for so long. When I got to a point, like when she passed away, I had a lot of things going on in life, but I realized that, that there was a lot inside of me that wanted and needed to come out because of what I just had in compassion and, and information from her and experiences in life and things I'd be able to come through. The lesson she taught me was unconditional love, which is, I think, one of the things that I, I live with every day now is the people that I get to interact with in my world, um, that I speak for, that I coach, that I see online, that I create content for. It's, uh, it's always based on this concept of, I don't know you, I'm not your blood, you're not mine, but it doesn't mean I can't wholeheartedly give you as much love and care as I can. Mm-hmm. As far as I understand, when it comes to the foster care system, you live with the family for a while first, right? Before they're able to... So she fought to adopt you. How long were you living with... Yes, with- I was there six years old, eight years. But the thing is, it's not like you're... Like you, there's a, it's a time period, but it's not always based on, you know, whether or not they, they want you or it's mostly based on the biological parents. My real mom was a little bit loopy, kept fighting the system and fighting everything to maintain her parental rights. So even though she didn't live in the household with me, obviously she had control of what I couldn't, couldn't do. I couldn't play sports for you know all these years. I couldn't go out and take trips for all these years. It was more like out of a spite. At one point she blamed the foster family for me being put to foster care in the first place. The sixth foster family it was their fault that I got put into foster care in the first place, right? Like there's this weird, like, like mental right. things going on. So that, that was what prolonged the period. And I had to stand up in front of a judge at 14 years old and be able to tell this judge and my mom, my real mom, like, Hey, I don't want you to be my mom anymore. And that's what did the, the process of severing parental rights and finally allowing me to be adopted. Hmm. Wow. And, uh, when you met your, your biological father for the first time, what was that experience like? It was cool, man. It was a weird one. So, I mean, I was, you know, I went to college on a scholarship, played at the University of Oregon, and my, my high school sweetheart had went with me. And somehow, I, my real grandma had lived two hours north of Eugene, Oregon, in St. Um, Helens, Oregon, up by Portland area, like two hours-ish. And, and so, somehow she got my number. I have no idea how, but she somehow got my phone number and called me, and we had conversations. She's a little bit spacey, too. And then at some point, my real mom moved up with her. I hadn't talked to my real mom since I was like four after a bunch of craziness. It was up there. And there's a conversation around my real dad. I'm a black man. My real mom is white. And my birth certificate says my dad's name is Daniel Patrick O'Byrne. And O'Byrne is not an African-American name. It's usually Irish. So if she's white and he's white, like somebody messed up. <laughs> so <laughs> I, uh, I, I started asking my grandma, like, hey, what was my dad's real name? She's like, oh, no, no. My, your mom said never tell you. And so I was like, all right. My fiance, girlfriend, you know, high school sweetheart at the time was like, no, no, no. You're going to ask. So she kept pressing me to ask. Finally get the name. It's Asaibavo. Uh, it's, it's spelled funny. It's, it's obviously an African-American name. And so look it up in the directory is seven in America. Give the guy a call. Uh, I asked, hey, do you know a woman named Marie from Concrete? He says, no, but I know a woman named Marie from Martinez. And I was like, oh, well, those are two neighboring cities in California. I said, um, you know, what, do you know of her running the year of 1983? He says, yeah, 1983, the beginning of the year we were dating, but then she left me because she was having an Italian man's baby. I was born December 1st, 1983. And so he says, you know, I went to the hospital, try to find you and see if it was my baby. And she wouldn't let me in. So I, I assumed it wasn't mine. And so he's like, uh, I, I believe I'm your father. And so it was like a unique conversation. I was in college playing football. And so I, when I met him, the unique thing, I was a sophomore trying to get on to this, you know, to be able to play at Oregon, Division One school against like a fifth year senior. He's been there literally four more years than me. And I'm trying to beat him out for a spot. And it was like this crazy battle in, in you know, spring. 
uh, or sorry, pretty much August summertime. And I beat him for the job. And our first game, like, he lived in Marietta, Georgia. I, uh, first game was in Mississippi at Mississippi State, like five hour drive. And so he drove. I actually beat the guy for a spot. So my very first collegiate start on national television and I got a game ball was the day I also met my real dad. And so it was like a really cool, like encompassing moment. I have like, a ball in my office right here of that exact day that shows the date of like this is the day I met him. But good dude, had no idea I existed until nine years later. I found out after this moment in time that he, he said, you know, um, like he was passing away from cancer. He says, I actually did know the entire time I should know what to do with it. So one of those moments like had after the fact of like nine years later, like, what do you do with this? And I realized that, and this is a lot of stuff in life. I think it was the right time for him to tell me, but I realized people in life, and we, they got things they're doing. Unfortunately, people are trying to do the best they actually can. But sometimes the effect on you is not the best it can be for you. So I didn't have this anger towards him. I had more of like this pity and, uh, and almost like a sadness of like, man, this guy missed out all on, on 30 something years of his, his son's life solely because in the moment he didn't think he could take care of me. So mm-hmm. that's, that's that experience there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a power. And probably I would imagine that there was some, there had to be some level of healing and closure that, you know, put kind of a period at the end of that sentence for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it was, I mean, I had already had the period having met him and, you know, established a conversation and it was, I would call it a very minimal relationship. So I felt good like that chapter was there. And I never really had this thought of like, you know, maybe he didn't know because like he was so adamant about, you know, this is not what family does. And then to find out years later, like just out of random phone calls, like, man, it, it, it made sense. Like I get it. And I wasn't mad because at the same time, I realized like my life that I'm living now, like I'm, I have a good life, man. I've had a lot of ups and downs. Yeah. But would, what would my life be like if I had a different last name and lived in Georgia? Like I, I have literally no idea. So it's like, I know what I know now, what I've got now. Like, I appreciate what he's taught me just in him doing that action. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I now have a new lesson from the way that he interacted, what he did, and what he told me at the end of his life. You guys, I am so incredibly humbled and blown away just this week while I was actually at my annual family camp that my wife Lisa and I helped co-run with another couple. We served 180 kids and families there at this camp that has been going on for the last 30 years. It's the place that Lisa and I met when we were nine years old. But anyway, I was notified while we were there by my uh, publishing team that Master the Key was featured in Inc. Magazine as one of the 14 books to read this summer to fuel your growth. Mind-blowing. I'm so incredibly humbled and grateful for the opportunity to share this message, the message of the book with you, and that it is being so well-received. And I'd like to share another review with you. This review comes in saying, if you have a pulse, this book is for you. Everyone, no matter their age, gender, socioeconomic status, race, personality type, and so on, will be confronted at some point to some degree by the overwhelming questions of identity and purpose that the protagonist Steve faces in Master the Key. What Steve learns through his openness to the wisdom of the characters he meets along the way are lessons we can all learn. The great thing about this book is that it is first and foremost not some self-help tome. 
Mike presents the life lessons simply and engagingly. Steve's life is not too far off from most people's. The characters are interesting and likable, and the plot twists surprise. I found myself immersed in a plot as it unfolded. However, it was only after I finished the book that I realized how much my subconscious had been processing its deeper takeaways all the while. In the weeks since I finished, I've been working to apply Mike's insights to my own understanding of who I am, what I am called to do, and how I am going to answer the call to live conscientiously and generously. As one who makes it a point to avoid self-improvement group gurus and their novel, brand new, never seen before programs, Master the Key was a breath of fresh air. Innovatively presented, its insights subtly subtly proposed, and its roadmap to personal well-being and happiness easy to incorporate into everyday life. Wow. That is what I thought when I read that review. I accept and receive it. I'm incredibly humbled and grateful to serve in this way. I hope that you will go to Amazon and pick up a copy or two of the of Master the Key, a story to free your potential, find meaning, and live life on purpose. So hit pause and go do that now. And then when you come back, let's finish this episode with the incredible Anthony Trucks. As when we were, uh, you know, talking before we hit the record, I was t- telling you about the story of um, of this janitor from Frito Lay's, who mm-hmm. he 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 actually only has a fourth grade education, mm-hmm. and and now and I'm, I'm going to fill in the blanks here in a second, but he, now he's the VP of Sales and Marketing for Pepsi Coke, Pepsi, which owns Frito Lay's, and mm-hmm. a lot of times he'll teach MBA classes mm-hmm. to these at colleges and. Um, as like an adjunct professor or something at this point. And he speaks all over the world. And, and anyway, so somebody, a, a student had the uh, audacity to ask him, how could you be teaching MBA classes when you don't have a PhD? You know? Mm-hmm. And he said, I do have a PhD. I've been poor, hungry, and determined. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, one of his, his stories is, so he, 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 he went to school to, uh, till fourth grade. And then he had to, drop out basically to go work in the fields and, and help support the family. And ultimately he got a, an opportunity. They were opening up a Frito Lay's factory. He got an opportunity to leave the fields and go work as a janitor. And his, his grandfather said to him, make sure those are the shiniest floors in the whole place. Make, make your presence known. You know, you, you have value, you have worth, let people see how good you are at what you do. Yeah. And and one of the things he said about fourth grade, fourth grade seems to be like this really weird point in time for people, a lot of people's you know, origin stories. It was for me. Um, but my one best of, friends in the world are all from fourth grade. Oh, really? Oh, that's funny. The one of the things he said is is his fourth grade teacher on the first day of class was asking all of the students you know, about what their dream job was, you know, did you want to be a vet? Did you want to be a doctor? Did you want to be a police officer, an athlete, whatever? And he realized he didn't have any dreams. You know, mm-hmm. he didn't have any dreams. Nobody had taught him how to dream. Mm-hmm. Who was the first person who taught you how to dream? Mm. Honestly, I think of the guy named Tim Manley. Tim Manley was the, uh, the yard duty in high school. 
So in high school, I was like this, this, uh, you know, I had potential, but I wasn't seeing it. My mom, actually, my adoptive mama got sick with multiple sclerosis. I'd just been adopted. I tried football and I wasn't good at it, although I loved the sport. And I was pretty much just like, you know, doing craziness in school. And then I eventually kind of got my head on a little bit and started, you know, doing a little better. And I remember it's a point in time when uh, I was running with the wrong kids, man. I, you know, I was finally doing better in, in football. I was getting some scholarship offers, running with the wrong kids and ended up getting uh, arrested for breaking into cars one night. And it was that, that moment of like, everything could be gone. I could be a statistic, like a, a foster care statistic, uh, which they're not good. Like any prison in America, 75% of the population is former foster kids. The homeless population, 51% are usually former foster kids. So numbers aren't good. I remember I had this moment where this guy, Tim, was always like this yard dude, just kind of sit beside and like, you know, kind of watch. And one time he took me in his little golf cart. They have his little golf carts that go around campus. And it's took me in a golf cart and he, he stopped me. He's like, you know, I, I talked to Principal Rich today. And Principal Rich, uh, he doesn't believe you're gonna you're gonna make it to college. He's like, he doesn't think you can. Nobody seems to think you can. He says, but I'm telling you right now, like you're gonna make it to the NFL. It's like I can see you doing some great things. I see the personality in you. I see I see your work ethics. I see what you've become from when you weren't very good. He says I can see you at that level, but he says I can't I can't do it for you. Like you have to see you there. And the moment that you can learn to dream bigger and see yourself there is the moment that opportunity becomes a reality for your life. And, and that was one of the conversations that has stuck with me my entire life. In fact, my son, I have two sons. I have this dog tag that I got. I found some, you know, that Facebook puts those weird things in front of you. It's just one that has a really cool quote on belief. And I believe in you, son. And I drove my son to that same spot, told him the same story and gave him this dog tag. Like, dude, I believe in your abilities better than you comprehend. And so that was a person that taught me to dream. I don't know if he knows that, but he was a, a big catalyst in a moment when necessary. My, my dad's taking care of my mom and my brother's off the military. It's just me floating on this island. He was one of the people that anchored it down. I was like, dude, there's, there's more in you than you know. Think bigger, go bigger, and then see what happens. And wow, and behold, eight years later, I played the NFL. Not even eight. Might have been six from that point. Wow. Wow. Did you, have you ever told him that story? I don't think I have. I mean, I've run into him here and there, but it's never been that depth of a conversation before now. Wow. That's so powerful, man. I, I, it's those small moments. You never know. The, the word inspire literally means to breathe life, to breathe into something, to inspire mm-hmm. something. Yeah. And so you never know the words. The words are so important because you never know if they're going to expire something or if they're going to inspire something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you, you, he did that for you. You're doing that for your kids. And it's so important because scientists and i have no idea how they measure this but like we have between 60 and 80,000 thoughts per day mm-hmm. and and since you and i are, are men i'll i'll stick with the the male statistic we only give about you know 7 to 10 that voice to about 7 to 10,000 of those thoughts each day mm-hmm. if you're the average man you and i are above average so we probably let's say let's say we're like you know 15 to 20,000 right sure. <laughs> but still that's a huge number of yeah. thoughts that remain stuck in our head, right? Yeah. So the conversation that we're having in our head is incredibly important. And we still speak to ourselves in the quiet of our mind using words. So words matter. Was that a point? Was that the mm-hmm. point in your life where the conversation in your head started to change or had that happened previously or did it really happen later down the road? I think it had happened a little bit prior to, but I think at that point, okay, so this moment in time with him, it had gotten a little bit quiet because the, the process for most of us is we have this a thought, an idea, a conversation, whatever it is, we, we push 
And then if we don't reach the destination, even if we make progress, we're like, ah, and we just kind of, you know, fall the wayside. So for me, my freshman year of high school, I was really bad at football. And I actually gave it up. And then it got to the point where at the end of the year, like I was sleeping in class, failing out, like I'm done with football. Like I'm not going to be good at this thing. And then heard these two girls in class have this weird conversation. And one says to the other one, well, the reason I'm so bad is because I'm foster care. And it was this really simple statement that really woke me up because at the end of the day, it was like the first time I heard someone say my excuse for why I'm going to do bad out loud. And, and I heard how stupid it sounded. I was like, that's gross. Like that's anything. That's not a good reason, dude. And so I just went home. It's like, I want to be great. And I, I chose to, to do this thing where I just put in a bunch of work in any way I could think of before, before I knew I was going to be successful. And it turned out where I, I showed up the next year faster and stronger and smarter and meaner. And that conversation in my head at that point was, in life, there's a lot of competition. I'm always competing against somebody in football or in sports or for the girl, whoever who knows what it is. But I was like, it, you didn't have the right to beat me because you didn't do the work I did. And that was the, the heaviest, loudest voice in the back of my head was, in that moment, like it, leading up, doesn't matter what I say when I'm sitting in my house and hanging out, but in the moment, if I had this voice that picked up and said, hell no, I don't care, you're going to win this. There's no way that all that work we did, Anthony, is going to be for nothing. Like that moment I showed up every single time and that was the catalyst that pushed me to be better at football uh, and going in the right direction, right? But then again, you get to that point where like you push and like, ah, so it wasn't in, you know any better. I was still in high school football. So I was like, I was going through the motions of my new level of operation. And that's where I started falling into bad habits and the wrong people. And then whenever he kind of had that conversation, I think it's not that the voice changed, but it got louder again. Mm -hmm. And I was like, dude, this, there's more to go. Like, all right, let's, let's pick back up. We did it before, let's do it again. And I kept grinding and grinding and sure enough, got scholarship offers and picked my school. And that was it. I think, yes, from that point on, the voice has always been very loud for me. Of, mm -hmm. uh, of always seeking a level that I can't see right now. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how, how many people do this. We'll call them dreams. But I think sometimes a dream is you're dreaming of something you can see. You're never really dreaming of something you can't see, right? It's not usually a common thing for people. So for me, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't call it a dream, but it's always this desire for something that I don't quite know, but I know is going to be better than I can even imagine. Everything we've accomplished in life, most of the time when we get to it, we're like, holy crap, this is better than I thought. Like parenting, better than I thought. Sex, better than I thought. Like it, you know, it's all these things that are super cool. So if I take that thought process and push it forward, I start going towards something. I push with desire for it, knowing that I have no idea what it is, but it's going to be better than I could even imagine. Yeah, totally. I totally believe that. I actually, I have a, I'm a Christian. I have a faith background, and and one of the, there's this verse in, I think it's Ephesians, where it says, mm -hmm. um, you know, basically we can do more than we can ask, think, or possibly imagine, and. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that that is such a powerful way to live life. Like, regardless of one's faith background, like let's let's lean into that. Why wouldn't you lean into that? You know. Yeah. So you, you end up in Eugene, Oregon. You're you're one of the ducks. My brother-in-law is a duck. Nice. And um, so I'll, I'll have to tell him uh, that you know he'll, he'll have to definitely listen to this this episode. But so you're you're inside linebacker for the Oregon Ducks. And obviously, you've had a lot of coaches in your in your in your life, be it high school, college, and then the, then the NFL. But a coach's job is to really ultimately get you from one place to another. So when you think about Eugene, Oregon, and mm -hmm. playing Ducks and coaching, yeah, who I'm I'm sure you had many coaches around you at that time, but who comes to mind as the one that helped shape you and prepare you? For what it was going to take to not only 
accomplish all of the objectives athletically and academically in college, but also prepare you for the NFL. Don Pelham, the DP. DP, uh, <laughs> DP was my college assistant coach, like my main coach. We had your assistant coach, had the coordinator, you had the head coach. You don't really interact as much with the coordinator, the head coach. It's like your assistant coach is like your dad. And I hated him. Like in college, I could not stand him. I, it was this thing where everybody, did, he, he would run people out of there. Like to get in there, he was so difficult. I mean, everything had to be 10 times harder than it had to be. If grades were due on Friday for the team, ours were due on Tuesday. If we had to be there at eight o'clock for the team, we had to be there at seven for the team. If the team had to, you know, do uh, you know extra hundred something, we had to do extra two hundred. It was just always extra, and I just got—I mean, you get to get like, pissed, you get tired of it. And I think for me, my thing was always—it wasn't that I went into it with optimism, like I'll push through. It was like I just, oh, I hate this, but I'm gonna finish it right. And I think the biggest thing is is goals, they, they, goals, dreams, desires, all these things we have—they demand of us something that is that is going to be a high level of pain, right? It always is because if not, you'd have it now. And to get that's going to cause a pain of separation, a pain of sacrifice of time, a pain of comfort zone or ego, whatever it is, it's pain. And if you can't endure pain, you can't succeed, period. I wish there was a way that I just can't. If you can't endure some kind of pain, you're not going to have this goal that everybody in the world is looking for and fighting for because everybody's going. There's so many people. So what he taught me to do in these moments was, and I didn't know until after, was how to endure pain. Like he purposely made it difficult and we hated him for it. But when I got to the to Buccaneers with Coach Gruden, Gruden was cake. It was a walk in the park for me. I'm like, I had already dealt with the devil. It's just one of his like little demons. Like, I'm good. You know, like it was just crazy. <laughs> and it wasn't until after like getting out of the NFL, getting into the real world of entrepreneurship, opening my gym, realizing that I had this weird knack of being able to endure pain. It's like, mm-hmm. I guess this is why are you guys freaking out, dude? Is, we're going to be okay. And I look back and I attribute all that to four years of figuring out how to deal with DP. Like I've since had a conversation with the guy and be like, dude, you know, I hated knowing you were in town. Like if it was the off season, I'd have to see you just knowing that you're still inside the town pissed me off. Like that's how much. <laughs> and, and now it's like, I look back and, and I really appreciate it. I had conversation with him about this thing. And he says, well, you got to realize that when I was, when I was as a coach, no, he's still a coach at UCLA now. He's like, you know, when I was your coach, so the biggest thing that I realized was your mom and dad left you with me for four years. And although my job was to you know, make you a better football player, my true duty as, as the person kind of in charge of you was to make you a man. And so that was his, you know, kind of corrective thought. Because as a parent now, I know how hard it is to, to be like, a, to punish the kids and beyond. I'm like, that took a lot of stress from his life to be yeah. honest like that. And so I appreciate it now more than everything, knowing that, that he was a coach for football, but really was a coach for my life. And it's mm. paid off dividends um, on the back end past football for me. Mm, I love that. I, I never thought about that, about the reality that these coaches are handed these young men and, and are basically charged with the responsibility, not only to make them great athletes, even better athletes than they naturally already are, but also to be sent out into the world and do big, great things. A lot to it, man. It's, it's a duty. It is a duty. It's, it's, it's amazing. So um, you also said something in there a minute, a minute ago that really struck me, and that is that you have to be willing to tolerate the pain. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that concept recently because a lot of people talk about dreams and how 
how dreams are free. So, so free your dreams, right? But the reality mm-hmm. is that doing actually comes with a cost, right? Yeah. You have to, it comes with a great deal of risk, uh, you know, failure, judgment, shame, victory. Hopefully, obviously, you're trying to do something great. Mm-hmm. When you, when you left the NFL and you, you know, made your first foray into entrepreneurship, what was your mindset like? Were you intimidated by the idea of becoming a business owner? Were you like naive that you, that you didn't know what to expect? Where were you? Oh, 100% naive, dude. That's, uh, <laughs> I think that the sad part is that, it, well, not even sad. I think it's sad for other people. A lot of guys got out of professional sports and women get out of professional sports and they enter into this world and they don't comprehend a few things that I'd learned quickly. So just like a precursor, nine months in, I was facing bankruptcy and eviction from my, my gym I had opened. I opened this gym. I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be amazing. And here's what the young 25-year-old Anthony with some money thought. Well, I played in the NFL. Amazing. I'm always going to be amazing. Everybody's always going to remember Anthony. I'm in my hometown. Everybody's going to know me. I got my degree in kinesiology. I know the stuff. I, shoot, I played a sport. Like these trainer guys that train... They want to train guys like I am, right? So like this big persona and ego picked up. And so what ended up happening was I opened this gym and I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. I'm eight, nine years behind my peers who have been in, in the work world. Business owners, they've been ahead of the game for me. I'm talking about I'm competing with guys who have now been in the game 10 years. Um, and I'm entering with this new swag. I think I'm the greatest. And all I can really do is play football. And, and I know the body, but I don't know how to create programs. I don't know how to run a gym. I never even owned a gym membership. I had no clients in at least 8,000 square feet of space. I mean, it was the stupidest and smartest thing I can do. Stupidest because it literally led me down a hole of like, this is all going to fall apart. Smartest because it allowed me to be able to pull from the assets that Anthony had as a human, which were uh, just how to deal with pain. Because there was a point in time when uh, in the middle of dealing with this, I'm dealing with me and my wife are falling apart and we're in the middle of going through divorce because I just was completely gone for months dealing with this gym business. Like I, I married the gym and divorced my wife without knowing it kind of thing. Uh, I had, you know, the student wasn't doing well. I'd lost my identity as a football player. Like I was sunk down and it was this, this, I called the microcosm of a world that I needed to be a part of. Like I needed to kind of get my, my chops. And I learned it there. Like I, I was able to dig out of holes, deal with people, find out how to grow clientele, how to deal with employees, employees stealing from me, <clears throat> um, you know, how to train kids, how to create programs, how to train professionals. Like everything came to me like like a blur. And the best I can I can say about it from the outside looking back at it is football prepared me for that. Like mm-hmm. I I unwillingly put myself in this situation. In hindsight, I would have been smarter to do something else. I wouldn't change it, but the speed of, of trouble or the speed of crazy is something I've been adapted to for like, you know, the last 12 years of my life is how do I figure out this hardship of this guy running full speed at me? How do I tackle him? How do I hit this guy? How do I you know whatever I got to do? And so I, I just took that without knowing it, just was applying it. And I came out the back end with a, a crap load of lessons and mindsets and ideas and eventually got success. But I think, yeah, coming out was incredibly naive to the situation, but that naivety taught me so much in the end. Mm-hmm. I like that you use the word identity there because I think that many people have these experiences, whether it's victory or failure, you're coming off of, uh, like you're like riding this wave. You're at, you know, of, of being a collegiate athlete, being an NFL player. Now you're going to crush it in entrepreneurship and it doesn't happen the way that 
Anthony Trucks is used to it happening. Mm-hmm. And, and you experience what psychologists, you start to experience what psychologists refer to as an identity crisis or identity foreclosure, right? Like, mm-hmm. I can, I'm never going to be that thing ever again. So, so what did you do to claim who you really are outside of all of that stuff? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing for me was, uh, if you think about identity, it's actually what I do now in the world. It's my realm of expertise. Um, but at that moment, I might have known what I was doing, but my thing was reinvesting somewhere. If you think about why I believed I was a football player, it was because I put 12 years of this, this effort and time and blood and sweat into something. And it becomes this, this investment bias for us as humans. We invest, we want to return. And so with that aspect in your identity, your investment is the, the micro actions, the time you put into something to where like, this is who I am now. Because if I don't claim it's who I am, then I, I have to admit that everything I've done was a waste. And we don't want to do that. So what I did, without knowing at the time, it was, it's been years past, I actually reflected upon all this. But at the time, I was like, I just got to reinvest my time somewhere. So I got to find that thing that makes me me again. And we mm-hmm. do that, right? So... For me, it was the gym. It's why I got to that dark hole in my relationship was because I had to find that sense of, you know, you know, bravado again somewhere. And so I figured I'm gonna put it into this gym. I'm gonna build this gym up. It's gonna be amazing. I'm the guy that owns a gym, although the gym is failing, right? And I, I fight for this thing just that I want this persona, although my family's falling apart. Um, and I think that was the biggest thing that put me there and trying to find out what do I do with this. And then in doing so, I think a lot of us don't comprehend that our identity isn't just what we do. Obviously, that's not the, it's not the gym, it's, but it's who we are. And it's, it's, I believe, the relationships and people that we have around us. So when I thought I was building my identity in this new thing, I was, in fact, tearing the foundation of it apart. So I was neglecting my wife and my kids and my health. And so that kind of led me to this you know, situation where now I had, I'd work for something, supposedly, like people say, I work for my family, I'm working for this. But in what I was working for, uh, I was completely neglecting. I think a lot of people unfortunately do this and they, they go towards one direction full hard because they're looking for that, that selfish, I got to find out who I am kind of thing. But who you are, you're losing without even knowing it. And so that was kind of the balance I fell into. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the impact entrepreneur told you to call. You know, uh, have you ever heard of Esther Ledecka? I've not. She actually has a, a really in- interesting story, and I'm going to tie this into your experience as an American Ninja Warrior. But she's an Olympic athlete, uh, a winter Olympic athlete. She competed. She competed in 2018 in two different sports: mm-hmm. uh, one snowboarding event and, and this women's super G. On the the during the women's super G, Lindsey Vaughn was favored to to win, but she was quickly eliminated. And ultimately, this woman from Austria won the gold medal. She was down. Uh, her name was Anna Weith, and mm-hmm. she was down. You know, be, being celebrated, people were hugging her and all that stuff. Up on the mountain is is Esther Ledecka in nineteenth place. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not her sport. Her, you know, she she. 
didn't people had no expectations of her. Yeah. Um, she was a snowboarder and yet she comes down the mountain so fast. I mean, she's flying down there at 67 kilometers per hour or something like that. I mean, it's crazy, crazy. fast. Yeah. She's take, she's taking a line that no other skier has done, taken. Mm-hmm. She ends up jamming down the mountain and wins gold by literally like one tenth of a second. Nineteenth mm. place to first. first. Yeah, because people underestimated her potential. Mm-hmm. Right, and because she was not a skier, she had the freedom in her mind to take a different line than everybody mm-hmm. else had done. Be okay now, to fail. Yeah, be okay to fail. Totally. You are on the American Ninja Warrior, this former NFL player, you're 240 pounds practically. You've never done anything like this. You've never mm-hmm. probably never climbed a mountain in your life. You know? I've never gone mountain climbing to this day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? um, and 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 really like and at, you even say this in this video I watched that basically they 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 wanted your backstory. They didn't yeah. expect anything of you, but but they wanted your backstory, which very often I think is the case that they they want people like the these uh, media personalities. They want a, a story sell. We all know they that mm-hmm. they wanted your story, but they didn't expect you to perform. Yeah. And uh, why don't you catch us up uh, from that point? Yeah, yeah. So the history of the show, big people don't do well. It's like most of the guys, are, I mean, the bigger guys, like they'll say, oh, it's a big guy. He's coming at 180 pounds. So I got like 60 pounds over the next heaviest guy. And for most of the guys, I'm talking at least 80 to, 80 to 100 pounds, depending on how tall they are. So I'm again, I'm not expected to do anything. In the past, I've had four NFL guys on and none of them make it past like the second obstacle. So, so I, and I didn't know this at all until after this all took place. So I got to the show and they did like the pre-interview of like, you know, hey, we're at breaking this whole thing down, telling the story. I'm like, all right, go out there and get it. Like, I'm gonna go get it. I'm gonna hit a buzzer. Like, oh, okay, sure. Like, and I remember in there, like the, the meeting feeling like, that didn't seem very confident. Like that, that last, you know, like, yeah, sure, go ahead. Like, <laughs> so, so I go out to the, you know, the show and you do your little interview and you, you go out and you wait for hours and I get up and they, you know, introduce me. I'm this big, like giant compared to the rest of the dudes. And I go out there and I get through it. And I actually become the first foreman of the lap to hit a buzzer. And, you know, smoke goes up and it clears and it's crazy. And I come down, the producers are looking at me like, what happened? So we knew what happened. Like, we did not expect you to do that. <laughs> like that we like were not supposed to do good. They're like, it's great. Like we didn't expect you to hit that buzzer. I was like, well, I did. <laughs> like what's going on right now? And so, uh, that was that, that moment of like, oh, well, I outdid even the guys who you had these thoughts. And like you're talking about, that's a great story to have a precursor is I had freedom. Like I didn't, you know, I didn't expect to have to kill this. I think I went into it knowing that I had only had seven hours of practice prior to the show. Right. And they don't, they don't set you up for success. You show up, they show you the obstacle one time and you get one shot, one, you fall, mm-hmm. you're done. Season's over. Right. So I've now gone three years in a row and made it from city qualifiers to city finals for three years in a row, top 30 go. So it's been a pretty cool thing. And I think at the end of the day, it's, it's always been in the back of my head of like, I've done a little, I've been a more practice since then, but going out there, like I'm not expected to do well. So mm-hmm. anything I do is good, which gives me a ton of freedom, way less stress. And it actually becomes fun. And I think, Fun is the missing factor for success. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I don't mean it has to actually be fun, but it's fun in comparison, right? Because there's things that I do on a daily basis for my career now, or everybody does, that are just not fun. But it doesn't mean you can't find the joy in it. Mm-hmm. And, and my perspective is always like find a joy within this pain. Because if, if I'm the one that can find a joy in the pain and do this pain full, I'm the guy that wins. Because everybody else is so focused on how bad this sucks and I want this to end. And why do I got to write all that? I'm the guy that just too long and has fun. And I'm smiling, doing the exact same thing you're dreading. And I get it completed. And you're like, well, how did that guy, he must be special. No, I'm just smart enough to realize that I have to find my own fun. So with like that show or with my work with parents, it's like your parenting. It's always like, I, and I tell my kids the same exact thing. Life is going to be comprised of things you don't want to do. And if you mm-hmm. don't want to do it, there is pain. But if you feed into the pain, all you get is more pain. If you find the joy, you have a great experience and you create fun. And then you're like me, which is I'm always creepy happy. Like I really love every part of my life. And people are like, why is this guy so happy? Like, why is this big black dude just smile all the time? I'm really happy. But it's only because of my perspective and how I view the things that that most people would cause or have caused pain to them. You're you're focused on the process of becoming good. You know, there, there's this Olympic athlete uh, named Eli Bremer who said that you can win on accident, but you can only be good on purpose. And hmm. And I, I think that, that the people that are obsessed with winning are the most miserable people. There's, not, there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong with having a desire to win, but mm-hmm. only focusing on that and not focusing and being present in the process steals everything, steals yeah. our capacity, our joy, all of those things. Yeah. Um, as we, as we wrap, wrap up the, the conversation, you know, I always conclude with the same three questions mm-hmm. from every guest. But before we get there, I want to make sure that people can connect with you where you are online, where they can interact with your work and, and engage with the great content that you're putting out there. Yeah. Uh, best place to find me is on, uh, is on Instagram. It's where I'm personally at all the time. It's at Anthony Trucks. Just how it sounds, Anthony, and the last name Trucks, like a vehicle. Besides that, man, I, the, the coaching that I do, if people are interested in like, because my concept of what I do work-wise is identity shift. It's how to make the shift to build a better life, whether it's personal, professional, I have programs that cover all that. So if someone's like, hey, I'm, I'm curious about what the identity shift is, where it can fit into my life and how it can help me build a business or build a better life, if you go to teamtrucks.com, um, you can actually go on there. Sorry, trucks team. I use reverse trucksteam.com. You can actually book a call with my team uh, and they'll walk you through a free conversation where you go through a strategy of what it is you need to do to get from point A to point B of where your overall goals are at. And that's trucksteam.com. Besides that, I mean, and I think that's it. It's probably the best place to find me and the work I do. Right on. We'll be, we'll be sure to link to both those things in the show notes. Now for the, the first of the three questions, if, right. you, if you could pick any skill set that you currently mm-hmm. possess and turn it into a superpower, what yeah. would it be? I think the this, this skill set that I... And I don't know if you call it a skill set, but my skill set of, um, of just talking, we'll call it charisma. I don't know, talking, conversation. Uh, I, I think if I, the superpower version of that is being able to listen, create formulated thought and communicate it very clearly to people. If my superpower could be communication, I think it would do so much. Because then I could talk to somebody to give me their plan. I could fly so I can get flight, right? <laughs> I'm but not to coerce people, but uh, I love humanity, man. I love the conversations that I get to fall into like these ones. And I think that the greatest joy for me is the ability to communicate and talk and, and have, have what I have the thought be something people can grab and latch on and get some benefit in their life. So communication. There is a guy that has that superpower. I forget what his name is, but he basically, I don't know if you heard the story, but he actually mm-hmm. traded his way 
He traded his way from a paperclip to a house. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Did you hear about that? Like, it, I think that's kind of a Midwest guy, actually. It's so from the Midwest, and he just like just kind of uptraded or whatever. I forget what the story yeah. was. <laughs> that's okay, awesome. The, the next question is, what are three lies that we tell yeah. ourselves that prevent us from becoming who we are capable of? I know one of them to begin with is like, I got this. And that's not to say that like, it's, it's not like, because people say like, I got this as a confidence thing. But to say, I got this and emphasizing the I, uh, the biggest lie is you are never going to be like the sole, sole person that, that gets you to the next level. Like there's no self-made millionaires. Sorry, I, I don't know one to this date and I've met many. So I think the biggest lie is that you can get it completely on your own. And I'm a guy that grew up in foster care. So I've always been this self, you know, kind of in, in internal secluded dude that doesn't, doesn't want to have outside help because I couldn't trust anybody at an early age. And I've always realized that, that I got this by myself is the worst thing I can say. Um, so that's the, one of the biggest lies. Uh, and the other lie is to say, like, I know who I am. I don't, I don't think that if, I think if you, first off, the first one, if you say, I got this, it stops you from seeking out information. It doesn't give you permission to get better, right? So if you say, I got this and I don't need anybody's help, I'll never get better because I'll always tell myself I got it. The next one, if I say, I know who I am, that tells me that I don't have to get any better. Like, I usually know who I am. And it's like, oh, I'm good with this. I know who I am, right? And it's like this, again, seclusion from uh, the permission to get better. And I, I think the fact of the matter is we're always learning about ourselves and you don't learn about yourself unless you put yourself into a crucible. And I think that that crucible can be multiple different things depending upon your life. It's all relative to you, but you've got to be able to really find out who you want. I think we're never going to truly find out. We're always going to be searching. And I think that, that one of the biggest things, um, which I guess could lead to the third part of it is I'm, I'm good where I'm at. And, and I think if, if, if you accept the lie, you're good where you're at, then you're accepting the fact that your cup's always going to be short of what it can be filled with. In our lives, we have capacity for so much joy, so much happiness, so much everything. We would call abundance. And people think it's like some arbitrary floaty, like abundance word. But truthfully, like we have the capacity for all this. But so many people, they die with a cup that's, that's you know, barely even got a drip of water in the bottom in terms of what they could have really had a grasp for. And so I think you can't accept that there's, there's that everything you're going to do is this right here. And you can't accept that you know who you are. Because if I know who I am and I'm cool with this, I'm never going to push in to fill that cup up. And that cup, man, I'm, I'm daily trying to fill it up. But it always comes with me sitting back and saying, what am I doing wrong? Who do I need to be? What experience I have to push into uncomfortably so I can see what this, this next level of what the next drop in that cup could be. And, uh, and that's my goal, man. I'm always trying to find out. Like I talked before we got on, like I'm trying to figure competition with my show, with my wife. It's figure show with my wife. Or like getting in shape, you know, get your body all like, you know, figure physique. I don't have a desire to do it. I would have never, ever done it. I also wouldn't have done the Iron Man that my wife wanted me to do. I wouldn't have done the Ninja Warrior show. Like, I would have done all these kind of things. Your wife signed you up for that, by the way. She signed me up for it, yeah. She's <laughs> like my great news. And, and I'm, I'm all for it because it puts me in positions to figure out new stuff. I'm curious about what joy can I find in this new area that I had no idea existed. I had this conversation with a guy, and I'll try to close on this, but he said that when we're kids, our, our scope of view is just wide open. We have this endless you know, you know, 180 view from eye to eye of what could happen in the world. As we get older, the view gets tired because we get better at things. We focus on what we want to do. We get down to this level to where after a while, at a certain age, we're only giving effort to one defined area, but we're unfulfilled. We're like, this is, I'm just tired of this. What else is there out there? And all we have to do, only thing we got to do is open back up and try more things like a kid again. So for me, that becomes a Ninja Warrior show. It becomes these Iron Man, these Spartan races we're doing. It becomes this figure show. I'm, I'm trying to widen it back open. Like, what in the world's out there? And that's where I'm finding the cup gets filled. Because mm -hmm. I can find new things and be able to create this cool, amazing, abundant joy. 
The last question is before I ask it, what's your favorite art form? I forgot to ask that at the top of the show. Oh man, it's a good question. Um, I like I like video documentaries, things I can learn, visual. I, that, that's my realm. I like that kind of stuff. Okay, so this ties into the last question. So it's a hundred years from now, and mm-hmm. and you've left a a set of instructions for a cinematographer for a director to curate a documentary that a docudrama that captures the life of Anthony Trucks. What would the that instruction, what would those instructions be? What would be the spine of the story that you would want to communicate to the world? Make shift happen. I know it's, it's, and I, I like, I'm thinking about these this thing every time that we, people like me talk about, we talk about our tagline or, or this is what I do, right? right? And, uh, and one of mine within the work I do is, is called make shift happen, right? And, and I think the biggest thing is I talk about like everything we want to do in life. We always want to have some big thing. You do this because you want a bigger what? I don't know what it is. We all were desiring that next level. We want something, we want something amazing to happen. We want some shift to happen, right? Uh, and then I realized that the only way that that's going to happen is if we shift ourselves. Who we are is, is on a daily basis, how we show up is like almost an autopilot for the most part. We try in certain areas, but for the most part, we just operate at a, a tick that allows us to not go crazy from just, you know, expelling so much willpower. And so the, the, the way we get to a level of making some crazy shift happen, some weird stuff, is we shift who we are. And, and again, it's all based on micro actions, the effort we put into something that actually creates our identity. So for me, I've just talked about the Ninja Warrior thing and this, the show thing. The reason I consider and say I'm a Ninja Warrior is because I put time into that, right? I'm not a fear competitor now, but in 14 to 16 weeks, I'm gonna be able to own that, right? And so anything that I want that is, is shift that has happened in my life happens because I shift through my corrections to create that. So the base, the spine is make shift happen because it's making shift stuff happen but it's also shifting internally to make that bad boy happen dude anthony trucks i love that man thank you so much for sharing your story and your wisdom and insight on the impact entrepreneur show very welcome thanks for having me thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening if you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact.